Thank you so much for uh, an excellent reading of scripture and for the courage and bravery it takes to stand up here and do that. I I really appreciate it. Um, So the passage that was just read, that's where our sermon's going to come from this morning. Uh, We've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been looking at some of the teachings that Jesus gives uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we talked about uh, three examples that Jesus gives of ways of demonstrating righteousness for sincerity and for a closer relationship with God rather than demonstrating righteousness to be seen of men. And uh, one of the ways that you can do that is in your giving. You know, you can either give so that everyone knows how generous you are, or you can give because you genuinely love God and love others and are trying to help. Your prayer life can be the same thing. Fasting can be the same thing. Those are the three examples that Jesus gives. But right in the middle of that discussion on prayer— Jesus does something that is extraordinarily valuable. It's something that we should all be very thankful that he did. In the middle of his discussion on prayer, he didn't just tell us some stuff about prayer. He then stops and he actually gives us an example of what he means when he talks about prayer. This is what a prayer should be. He actually gives us a model prayer that we should be praying. And if you look at where this prayer is placed, I think it's very strategic in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is the middle chapter. And in that middle chapter, there's three examples of ways to practice righteousness. Giving, prayer, and fasting. And this is the central uh, example. Uh, What we're seeing here is like the very center of the Sermon on the Mount is this prayer. And I think if you read this prayer and you keep the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and then the rest of the the Gospel of Matthew and and the rest of all the Gospels, the rest of the New Testament, the rest of our call as Christians in mind, I think what you'll see is this prayer becomes central to what the ministry and mission of Jesus is about. It becomes central to who we are and who we ought to be. Now, I think this prayer is something that throughout church history— has been repeated by the church. And uh, anytime you repeat something over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, one of two things can happen. Uh, On the one hand, it could become so ritualistic and mundane that it becomes just a vain repetition. And that's actually one of the things that Jesus warns about is, you know, don't just have vain repetitions. It would be the height of irony to take this prayer and turn it into the vain repetition that he just told you not to do. However, the, the flip side of that is sometimes saying something day after day after day after day, it doesn't make it become mundane and meaningless. It actually keeps it at the forefront of your life and of, and of your mind so that uh, it's something that you know. It's something that becomes a part of who you are. Like, I would, I don't think, I would never encourage a spouse, hey, only tell your wife you love her once a year. You don't want it to become mundane. Like, that would be bad advice, right? Uh, That's the type of thing. Say it often. Say it regularly. Be sure that it doesn't just become, uh, you know, a a mindless part of getting off the phone. Okay, thanks, love you, bye. Like, but, but actually say it a lot. Like, there are things like that, you know, prayer or the Lord's Supper. I think taking it regularly, taking it uh, and, and remembering what it's about is a central part of reminding ourselves of who we are and who Jesus called us to be. So I, I think that there's would be actual value in praying this prayer. Uh, I, I was raised um, in, in kind of a, an environment where we didn't pray this prayer very often. Uh, it was more seen as it's an example, but not something you actually do. 
I think there's value in actually doing it. Uh, you know, pray the prayer because it's going to remind you of what is most central to Jesus's life and mission. It'll remind you of what matters most in your life, and Jesus actually says to. And so, uh, so for all of those reasons, uh, I would encourage us to make this prayer a regular part of our prayer lives. Now, having said that, it's probably a good idea to know what this prayer is about and, uh, and to, to think through it a little bit. And it's actually, it's such a simple prayer. And, and I think that's intentional. Uh, Jesus, that's the, one of the points he's making about prayer, is that it should be something that is simple, sincere, and heartfelt. And then he gives us a very simple, short, sincere prayer that we ought to be praying. Um, so look with me at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Uh, this prayer, it is, uh, in, in, you can't see it too well in your English Bibles, but it is basically, the structure of it is just seven imperatives all in a row, just one right after the other. Uh, an imperative normally is a command, like when you're reading the Bible, uh, a second person singular imperative is like, you do this. Um, in prayer, the imperative can take on uh, another function as a petition, and I think that's, that's a better way to read this. I don't think it's, it's necessarily commanding God to do things, but it is petitioning him to do things, but it, there's an urgency there to it. But let's look at these seven petitions. Uh, the first three of them deal with what God, what we're requesting or petitioning God to do for himself. And the last four of them are petitions that we have for God on our own behalf. Uh, and so we'll see that as we go through it, but that's a pretty easy way to divide it up. Seven petitions, three for God and four for us. Uh, the introduction, though, is in verse 9 when he says, Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. And that's, that's not a petition. That is a, a designation. That is just uh, uh, describing who God is. But notice he calls God our Father which is uh, the height of intimacy in a relationship. Uh, he, we are calling God uh, one of the most important and foundational relationships that we have on earth is what we're supposed to have with God. One of the difficulties with the language of father is uh, not just in our society, but this is, a, this is a, a, an issue that has long existed, is that when I say the word father— we all have different experiences with our fathers. And that's going to conjure up different images in some of our minds. Some of us will have wonderful images and pictures in our mind when we talk about our father. Um, some of us, however, will have probably uh, painful or, or difficult images that come into your mind when you think about your father. Not all fathers are the same. And so I think Jesus is intentional with using the language of father because that ideally should be a meaningful and close relationship with someone who's respected, someone who loves you, someone who has been there for you, someone who will help you. Jesus will use the illustration of father later in this very sermon when he, when he says, you know, you guys, your fathers, how, how many of you, if your son needed something, if he needed, uh, you know, a fish, you'd give him a snake. You know, it's like, if you're a father, you try to help your, your children. And so he, that's, the, that's the image he wants us to have. But I think because of the difficulty that we might have when thinking about fathers, it's important that he uh, qualifies it by saying, this is our father who is in heaven. This is not an earthly father. Earthly fathers, some are good, some are bad, some you can trust, some you can't trust, some are present, some aren't. But our heavenly father is the one who is always there for us. Our heavenly father is the father who, even if you've had a poor example of an earthly father, here's a father that you have who you can love and trust and count on. So our father who is in heaven... Petition number one, imperative number one, hallowed be your name. 
That's the first thing he says. Remember, the first three of them are about God. And the first one is where he says, hallowed be your name. Um, That is at least the way that it's translated in my Bible. I'll say... We don't use the word hallowed very often anymore. Um, you know, I, I think uh, like Halloween, you know, we have, we have it there, uh, and, uh, or at least a form of it. Um, but uh, it basically means to make holy, to make sacred. And what he's saying is make your name sacred and holy. Um, that would be uh, the, what the petition is. Our Father who's in heaven, make your name holy among us. Um, what does it mean for God to make his name holy? We, we've talked about the name of God quite a bit. Uh, in fact, just recently, uh, we, we've mentioned it a couple of times. And there's a, a rich Old Testament uh, tapestry of uh, ideas and verses that talk about the name of God and how valuable it is. Um, it's something that Israel was supposed to take with them and carry around to show the very reputation of God among the people. People were supposed to learn of God by looking at the people who were called by his name. But what so often happened, and what often happens still, is that the people who wear the name of God, or for us, we might say the name of Christ, so often act in a way that dishonors that name that God becomes blasphemed because of the actions of his people. You know, it, it, maybe if you're a parent, you, you might sometimes have the fear that if, you know, if my kids don't act right, people will judge me for that. It's like, you know, the, the, my kids will do something wrong and I'll have to bear the brunt of, of their actions. And so a lot of parents, there's a lot of fear that comes with the way their kids act because they, they don't want that to happen. They, they don't want to be judged because of their... And um, that, that's either fair or unfair. My point is God is often judged based on our actions. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, I've, I've heard it said before that you are the only Bible a lot of people will ever read. Um, a lot of people aren't going to pick up their Bible to learn about Christ in the church. What often happens is they look at Christians and they, they determine what they know and think about Christ based on who we are and how we act. And so often what happens is if they see hypocrisy, if they see a church that's emphasizing uh, harmful or, or worldly things, then they end up thinking that's not really something I want to have anything to do with. If they see judgmental and hateful attitudes, they think that's not something I want to be a part of. And, and so often people will then assume that God is hateful, judgmental, cruel, or whatever, based on the way that Christians act. And so when Jesus is saying, make your name holy and sacred— I think that if you have a God whose name has been dragged through the mud because of the actions of his people, what you're praying for God to do is to rise above that and to lift his name so that people will see his goodness, perhaps even in spite of us. There's a passage in Ezekiel chapter 36 that I think makes the point really well. Um, The children of Israel have been called by his name. And yet, they have gone into Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem has been destroyed, and the, the city of God has been left in ruins. And so, what do the Babylonians think about the God of Israel? Well, he's not too powerful. He couldn't even protect his city. And he's not too moral. His people act like, uh, you know, act rebellious. And like, all the, like, God's name is profaned. God is seen as weak. God is seen as, uh, as nothing, I mean, as, as inferior to the gods of Babylon. He's inferior to Tiamat, or he's inferior to Marduk, or these other gods. Why? It's because of the actions of his people. And so what you get here in uh, Ezekiel 36 is God promising to restore his people But one of the interesting things is God's promising to restore them, not because they've earned it, not because they were so good, but so that his name 
will be elevated again among the nations. If you look at verse 22, it says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you live. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in your midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from the lands and bring you into your own land. So when he talks about bringing them back home to their own land, he says, I'm doing so because you have profaned my name. And because of that, the nations have profaned my name. And while you still aren't, uh, haven't deserved this, in order to save my own name from the profanity and from the vulgarity and from the, the blasphemy that is taking place everywhere, I'm going to act. And what Jesus is saying is do that now. I can't promise that I will be perfect, and I can't promise this church will be perfect, and I can't promise that all of your people will act in such a way that honors your name and makes it holy, but you, God, make your name holy and and do it now. Um, That's how Jesus begins this prayer, with uh, uh, with a petition for the very name of God to be uplifted, made sacred, and made holy. He moves on from that to then talk about the mission of God which is what this God is doing in the world. When he says, your kingdom come, that's the second petition. And it's basically, make your kingdom come. (laughs) You know, we we want your kingdom to be here on earth. The kingdom is the very reign and rule of God. The kingdom is where God's will is done. And God's will is done in heaven. Like, uh, in, in heaven among his angels, when he sends angels, they listen to him. You know, God's will is done in heaven. You don't have sickness and death and, and, and uh, evil and starvation and all of those things taking place in heaven. Because God's will and reign is taking place there. What Jesus is praying for, I think from this phrase through the rest of the prayer, is for that kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven. And he's going to give us a number of pictures of what that's going to look like. So the first thing he does in verse 10 is he continues to describe what he means by your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Well, what does that mean? It means your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like the way that God's will in his kingdom reigns supreme in heaven we want to see that on earth also. We want humans to, to see God as the legitimate ruler and king of this world rather than ourselves or rather than the, the political uh, uh, leaders that we have or different kings or governors or whoever may be ruling. We want people to see God as king and we want obedience to be given to him first and foremost in this world. We, when Jesus goes through his ministry— That's actually what he's doing. When Jesus is teaching the will of God, you're seeing glimpses of the kingdom. When Jesus is is, uh, healing and feeding the 5,000, you're seeing glimpses of the kingdom of God. When he's healing the infirmed, you're seeing glimpses of the very reign of God taking place in the lives of people. You're seeing glimmers of heaven on earth in each of these events. And I think you see the same thing when the church feeds those who are hungry, when we clothe those who are naked. You're seeing glimpses of the kingdom of God. You're seeing glimpses of heaven taking place here on earth in the lives of people. And what Jesus is saying is your kingdom come. And also, number three, make your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see that here and we want to see that now. Now, it is valuable, it's essential to note that this is a prayer for God to do this. What I mean is we play a role. We uh, 
act and obey and live for the kingdom. But we do not have the ability or the power ourselves to bring about God's kingdom on earth. We pray for God to do that, and we live and work towards that. But ultimately, God's kingdom coming is God's activity that we pray for and that we trust in him to bring about. So we live for it and strive for it, yet we pray for God to be the one who brings it about. And those first three petitions are all things for God, his name, and his mission on earth. But if you're wanting to know what that looks like, where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, you keep reading the prayer, and there's four petitions about uh, what God will do for us as king and what we want God to do for us as the one whose will is done on earth. The first thing that's mentioned is in verse 11 when he says, Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, A couple of things to note about uh, the prayer from this point forward. He says, Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. We might think of this as an individual prayer that we pray, but if you look at the language of it, it's actually a communal prayer. It's something that will meet our individual needs to be sure, but it's also something we're praying for and on behalf of the whole community. And so we're praying for God to feed us, and we're praying for God to forgive all of us. And we're praying for uh, God to, to keep us in safe places and deliver us from dangerous places. Like, as you go through this prayer, this is something you pray for with the rest of the faith community in mind. And the first thing that he mentions is giving us our daily bread. There's some translation issues with the word daily. It's kind of basically, it's hard to know exactly what it means. Um, The traditional interpretation or translation of that word is daily, and I think that's probably a good one. Uh, There's some reasons to to trust that. Um, But it's a fascinating idea that Jesus doesn't just say, and give us our bread, or make sure that we always have enough to eat, or make sure that we have enough secured and stored up uh, for winter, and then for next year, and then for years and years to come. What Jesus focuses on this prayer is our daily bread. And that can conjure up a number of images in our minds, but one image that I think should be conjured up is that of the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness getting manna from heaven, where they received a daily allotment of bread. And if you remember, they were not supposed to store it up for the next day or for three months or whatever. They were supposed to every day be thankful for the bread that they got And every night, go to sleep trusting in God's provision for tomorrow. This is an idea Jesus will come back to uh, later in Matthew chapter 6, when he says in verse 34, the last verse, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I think in our prayer lives, if you spend so much time thinking about what the potential pitfalls of the future might hold— you end up adding stressors and anxieties to your life that haven't even been happened yet. Like, they're not even real yet. They're potential anxieties, and yet we focus so much on them that they end up stealing our peace and our trust and our faith in the present. And Jesus is an advocate of if, if you can have peace, if you have bread right now, be thankful for that bread. Pray for that bread. And you know what? You, you might have, you know, it's not saying don't be wise. That's not saying, but, but don't let the potential stress of future difficulties 
rob you of your peace right now. And don't let them rob you of your uh, reliance on God right now. I, I think that was one of the messages of the manna in the wilderness, is that you every day wake up trusting in God for that day. And don't let the, don't let the, the fear of what the future might bring rob you of the peace and the, the provision that God has given you right now. Maybe take each day at a time uh, is, a, is a helpful reminder. And that's the way Jesus seems to word this prayer with respect to our food. Each day, just like the children of Israel relied upon you in the wilderness, let us rely upon you now. Secondly, he says, and forgive us our debts. So in the kingdom where God's will is done on earth, we have food each day. And in the kingdom where God's will is done on earth, our debts are forgiven. But notice that idea of the forgiveness of debts. Notice what that implies. It implies from the get-go that this idea of us making God's name holy and us doing his will on earth as it is in heaven is going to be a struggle and we're going to fail from time to time. Uh, It's not going to be something we do flawlessly. So along the way, built into the very foundation of who we are as a people is the concept of forgiveness. It's like we have our mission And we have the reality that we'll fail in that mission. And so we rely upon the forgiveness of God each day. The dangerous part of the prayer, though, is that Jesus doesn't say, I I wish he would have said, and forgive us of our trespasses because you're so gracious. Now, let's move on. Uh, But that's not the way he words it. He says, forgive us of our trespasses as we have forgiven the, uh, the debts of others or those who have trespassed against us. And he actually likens the forgiveness that we receive to how well we forgive others. So that becomes, yes, a petition uh, for God to be forgiving to me, but it also becomes a challenge. Make sure I'm forgiving others. Uh, I would sure hate to face a stingy God when it comes to grace and forgiveness. Uh, What would cause God to withhold forgiveness? If you read through this prayer, if you read through Matthew 18, Jesus gives a very parable about this, about someone who was forgiven a great deal, but he refused to forgive the person who had wronged him or who owed him. And then the great king who had forgiven him so much ends up withholding that forgiveness. And the idea, and this is actually, by the way, the very idea that Jesus, after the prayer is over, he's going to come back to this one. Look at verses 14 and 15. This seems to be central to what he's calling us to do because this is the point after the prayer he picks up on. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now you could say, well... He doesn't really mean that. You know, forgiveness isn't based on, on merit or anything like that. And okay, I, I, I agree it's not based on merit. You can't earn it. But I do think we ought to take Jesus very seriously right here. Jesus says, if you're not willing to forgive others, then God won't forgive you. So what should that make us really, really, really want to do? Forgive others. I would err on the side of forgiving rather than on the side of withholding forgiveness. Because I would rather God err on the side of forgiving me than withholding forgiveness. Uh, The idea is the more gracious you are, the more gracious God will be to you. And and the the, the reverse of that is actually in chapter 7 when he says, And judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you judge, you will also be judged. The idea there is, and if you're harsh and condemning and judging other people, then you'll face a harsh and condemning and judging God. 
So the way that you treat people is going to be, at least some measure, uh, a, a, a picture of the way that God is going to respond to you. Be forgiving and don't be judgmental. If you want a forgiving, gracious, not judgmental God, then treat others that way. And, uh, and so when you have a world where debts are forgiven, you're starting to see the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. And so be a forgiving person. He goes on in verse 13 with uh, two final petitions where he says, And do not lead us into temptation, but, number two, deliver us from evil or from the evil one. This conjures up a couple images in my mind also. The idea of God leading us. And where does he lead us? Uh, Psalm 23 presents a really beautiful picture of God leading us beside the still waters. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, which is similar to some of the language of this prayer. But God leading us to fruitful, healthy, safe places. Uh, the guy, idea of God delivering us from evil. There is so much evil in this world. There's the evil one is another way you could translate it. I think of like the children of Israel in Egyptian slavery. There was so much evil around them, and God, through a mighty hand, delivered them from that evil. When you look at the world around us, there's temptation, and there's so much evil, and we're praying that God leads us in other directions, and that God does not deliver us into that uh, temptation or that evil, but delivers us from it. As you read through Matthew, you know, this is always the case— God doesn't always answer prayers the way you kind of want or expect him to. Uh, he, he sometimes does his own thing with the way he answers prayers. Like Jesus in Gethsemane, I think, is praying uh, that this cup would pass from him because he does not want to face the cross. And yet it was the will of God that he did. When you read through the rest of Matthew with this prayer in mind, and you think about being led into temptation, Matthew chapter 4 in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus is led into temptation, yet he overcomes that temptation. When you think of being delivered from evil, Jesus was delivered to evil on the cross. When we pray this prayer about being led away from temptation and being delivered from evil, I think we have to do so with overwhelming gratitude to the one who was led into temptation and who suffered the full brunt of evil on our behalf so that we don't have to. Jesus overcame temptation and he conquered the evil of this world so that we could be, through him, delivered from it. And that is something that uh, the whole Gospel of Matthew is pointing towards, and you see it here in this prayer. And it's something that as we pray this, we ought to remember and give thanks for every day. If you want to be a forgiving person, remember this prayer. It calls you to be forgiving. If you want to be thankful for what you have right now, Remember this prayer. If you want to honor the name of God and remember his mission and his kingdom in this world, make sure this prayer is on your lips day and night. If you want to uh, call upon God to, to lead you into safety, to lead you away from temptation, to deliver you out of darkness and out of evil, then this prayer is an essential part of that challenge as we draw our lesson to a close is think about this prayer throughout this next week. I would say pray this prayer once a day. 
for the next week. It will help remind you of the central ideas of what Jesus is calling to us, what his mission and his ministry was all about, and it'll call us to live into that. And if there's anyone here who wants to be part of God's reign and God's kingdom, you are invited right now to name him as Lord of your life, to have the forgiveness that he offers, having your sins washed away in baptism, and naming him as Lord of your life. If you have the need, please let it be known and come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.